Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Yai, the producer with our host Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. I'm host Marshall Jones here with Dina Brodsky. And today we will be talking to Christian Fagerland. He is a a wonderful artist, someone that I actually admire for both his drawing and painting abilities. We've never met before in person, so this is this is going to be fun, a real treat. And uh, he teaches, I know, in Texas, right, Christian? Yeah, University in North Texas. Okay. And you went to the New York Academy as a grad student, right? Yeah, back in 2002 to 2004, and then uh, did the fellowship from 04 to 05. So I was there for three years. Oh, okay. And for the listener, that means you sort of, I mean, it's kind of a, would you say like a best in class sort of prize, that fellowship? Downtown. Yeah, it was, um, I think it was the second year that it had taken place. I think the first year, um, the year before it was Amy Bennett and uh, JP Roy. Okay. And yeah, as they explained it, it was like, uh, typically it would be one sculptor, one painter, one drawer, like person from each of the focus. And uh, a lot of people applied and um, I was lucky enough to get it. I mean, there were, there were a lot of good painters there. So um, yeah, and it was, it was an incredible experience. I mean, it really, the two years was great, but the third year, really kind of made the whole experience just much, much richer and maybe made it a bit more like, more like a typical MFA program, you know, like the Academy, it was weird because you do this first year of foundation work. That's just pure studio based. Then your second year, you're kind of integrating into like your own ideas, um, kind of more personal work. And then it, you know, comes to a head with your diploma project. I don't know if it still has this f- format, but. So Christian was actually third year when I was a first year. You were the people that we looked up to and kind of wanted to emulate. But the diploma project, Marshall, back in that day was one painting. And so you were given a year to just concentrate on uh, one painting that was kind of your magnum opus. And then a few years later, they changed it to basically now you create a body of work and like something that you can kind of apply to galleries with. But I actually thought it was really interesting just to have that amount of time to focus on one thing because I never had it since. Yeah, it was, um, it was really stressful. Like, I don't, I don't know that I've kind of considered a painting as much as I considered that painting in terms of like preparatory work and sketches and color studies. I mean, the research that I have from the creation of that painting. Um, yeah, it's, it's more extensive than anything I've done for, for anything else. I feel like it's um, maybe healthier and more realistic to focus on like a smaller body of work rather than a single piece. Cause it, it just, it just puts so much, pressure on like this one piece 
it's hard to kind of experiment, let go, kind of be more fluid in the process when you're so kind of careful about what you're doing because you want, you know, want a good product at the end. So that third year like allowed, you know, one of the benefits of the third year is that you got to have a, a show, like a real show of, of a full body of work. And in that way, along with acting as a teaching assistant, those are the, the things that kind of made it more like uh, kind of typical MFA programs. Oh, so you got a show with a body of work on your third year then? Yeah. What, what do you think of that painting now? The, the one that you did? Um, <laughs> oh, the weird thing is, is I don't even think I have an image of it. Um, <laughs> so, so it, and, and after I finished it, um, I moved back to California and, and I was so, it just, it had so much, um, emotional weight to it for me that it's like, I was just sick of it. Like I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to kind of consider it anymore. And so I just gave it away to a friend. Um, so he has it and I'd, I should get an image of it from him. Like I had images, but you know, it was like the beginning of kind of digital photography. I had, you know, like a Canon, my first digital camera and, um, had images. And then, you know, in 2007 or something, my hard drive blew out and I lost, I don't know, like, three years of images from that time. So, so, uh, but it's, but I remember it very, very clearly. And it was, um, and it was, it was interesting. Um, It was, yeah, I don't know. Should I get into like what it was? Yeah, I mean, now that you, (laughs) now that you talk about it, but yes, please get into what it was. I'll try not to spend too much time on it, but um, it's like, so you get into this um, second year and it's like, what do you want to start to deal with? And, and I was, I was really interested in intimacy and like, particularly like sexual intimacy and like, can you make a painting um, about sex that feels um, authentic and, uh, isn't kind of fitting into kind of overly romanticized representations of, of sex um, and isn't falling into the kind of the shock value of like the pornography of sex. Um, so, so I ended up, um, it felt weird to get models, you know, to like plug models into these poses, you know, and, um, to, to try and recreate something. So, so I ended up like, it was a self portrait of me and my wife. Um, and, and so there were just many, many manifestations when it began, like, all right, how do I, how do I like get through this minefield of like making a painting about sex? Um, uh, and, and I think in the end it was successful. Um, I was painting it in a way that, I don't know, at that time I felt so kind of schizophrenic in terms of how I painted because, you know, you're going to these classes and I would 
go to Stephen Sales class and try and paint like Stephen Sale, and then I would go to Wade's class and try and paint like Wade. And so it's like I was like, I don't know how I paint, you know, naturally, like what my own way of doing things is. Um, so it was this weird kind of amalgam of all these different technical influences. Um, but yeah, it was a large scale kind of four by five feet um, painting of me and my wife um, in our bedroom. And she's sitting up on the bed and I'm on the floor uh, doing things. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it particularly graphic, this painting? or? No, no, it's, no, it's, um, you don't see any genitals. You don't see any, um, it's, it's, the room is really dark and it's all kind of backlit. Um, so there's a, a kind of lack of clarity and ambiguity to like what you're seeing. Um, I'm, I mean, I know, I know at the time when the show was up, there were, I don't remember who, but there were definitely people that were kind of shocked by it but I would not call it graphic. I wish I had the image to show you right now, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, it was a, a, a strange and interesting process, you know. It wasn't graphic, but I remember it because I think one of the times I um, hitchhiked down to New York, you know, before starting the Academy, that show was up and that, uh, and I actually remember it very, very clearly. And oh, you do? It wasn't graphic, but it was sexy. And it was painted like, like, I feel like you don't do yourself justice as far as just how good the painting was. Like you might've felt schizophrenic, but what it looked like, you looked like a person fully in control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. That's, that's kind of what I wanted, you know. Yeah. The subject matter is always tricky, especially coming from a male point of view and an art historical context is so like fraught and sort of not liked. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't really a sex painting. It was a love painting, I think. Yeah, it was about like embrace. Um, yeah, it was about the embrace rather than the sex, really. I think that's maybe what kind of pushed it into uh, away from something that felt more graphic or pornographic. Uh, Dina, I want to ask you, what do you think made it a love painting rather than a sex painting? Because that's interesting to me. Um, Yeah, okay. You know how people say, like, you can tell porn when you see it? Yeah. And also tell love when you see it. (laughs) Um, It it was the way it was composed and the way the paint was handled and... Okay, like, you know Eric Fischel's paintings of, like, naked people doing stuff in bedrooms? Yeah. Actually, those don't feel like sex paintings or love paintings. They actually feel a little bit like gratuitous nudity paintings. So, but but there it feels like, it felt like they're doing things in bedrooms naked for no reason. And every one of your paintings that I've seen, there's they're careful and there's a reason for everything happening, everything that's happening the way it is. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm misreading you entirely, but that's at least that's the way that I perceive it. No, no, it's, it's, it's great. Cause I've, I've never, I've never really, I mean, you get feedback at the time um, and it's generally positive, you know, from people and it's quick. So I've never, I've never heard anyone, anyone's read of that painting. Um, but 
what you're getting from it is really what I was trying to do. Yeah, that that impression is is it's good to hear. So it's like I don't know, fifteen or eighteen years later, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> I still remember it. But also what I remember was being really like, as a result of that painting, I was so impressed by it that I was, so you were a third year at the time that I was a first year. And I just remember being too scared to talk to you the entire time. Oh. At the Academy. <laughs> I wish you hadn't. I'm not, I'm not scary. <laughs> <laughs> Never have been. <laughs> um, you know, I think I was also 22. There was, there was very few things I was either... I was either intimidated or wanted to fight stuff. That, those were like my two states. That sounds like 22. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Christian, Dita said you, it's careful. Do you, do you think you're a careful artist? Yeah. Yeah, careful. Um, huh, that's a good question. I've never thought of that as... Uh, you know, an adjective that I would use, but it's meant as a compliment. Like I feel like when it's used in a grad school context, that wouldn't be a compliment, but it is coming from me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wasn't, um, careful. Yeah. There, so there have been points where, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm careful about, about, um, what and who I'm painting. I'm careful about the way that I paint, which, which I think to a fault to some degree, like it's, um, but it's something that I'd say now, like in the present and this kind of past two years, I'm starting to try and kind of break out of that. Cause like this back series from 2018, that was like the most, I'd say kind of technically careful I've been with any of my paintings. Um, and it's like kind of the better I got, the more careful I was. But when I did that series, I hit I hit a point where I was like, all right, I need to, I need to start to kind of swing in the other direction. Um, and I'm careful in terms of like I think I think a lot of artists um, paint a lot paint a lot, paint a lot, make a lot of paintings and then kind of choose their best ones to show. Um, And I feel like for me, it's, uh, I don't really have the time to do that. Like I I need to kind of go into a painting having a a really good solid idea of not, of, 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 of a good composition, of a tone that I'm trying to create, of a, a situation, a feeling that I'm trying to create. So there's a lot of planning that goes into that. Even, even in terms of scale, I feel like I'm kind of jumping all over the place. But, you know, like, like if I'm working at a small scale, I'll, so first I'll figure out what that composition is. And then I will, especially when it's small scale, print it out at many, many different sizes to see which size feels right for that subject and that composition, and then finally go in and actually start making the painting. So it, it feels like that, that feels like a very kind of careful practice, you know, like you're it's like part of this that I just, I don't, don't want to waste time, but also it's about like considering how every aspect of the painting kind of 
um, affects affects the, the experience of the viewer, you know? You know, Christian, maybe what I meant is, is a word I meant because now I'm kind of conscious of the word, the word careful. I think I meant purposeful. Like every oh, okay. paint feels purposeful. Yeah, I try to. So, um, okay, so by the way, so what happened after you left the academy? You graduated, you had this beautiful body of work, and then where did you go? Uh, so I stayed in New York for another two years and worked on uh, a new series of paintings, and um, which were all kind of continuing from that that um, that fellow show that was uh, you know that was made up of it was kind of branching off of the diploma project, but I was like, all right, I'm over sex. I'm not going to go into that anymore. It's too complicated. It's like this minefield and, and, um, and, and made this realization that what, that what I was more interested in was, was intimacy. Um, not really sexual intimacy, but intimacy. And, and so so that led to a series of paintings, small scale, you know, ranging from one by three inches to six, probably five by five was the largest um, paintings of my wife. And it was, it was kind of everyday moments with her that I found beautiful, you know, like, and all of these activities that you do, these things that you see when you live with someone, you know, like, them sleeping or showering or, um, yeah, bathing, getting dressed, putting on makeup, um, relaxing, you know, like, so, um, and again, it felt, so it was like this, it was great because that, that painting of her and I just made me realize how important painting her was versus these two years of painting models kind of random models you know it was it was really about her and and knowing knowing that i was getting moments that were kind of authentically intimate that you know which which is hard to do with a model unless you have like kind of a long-term relationship with them where they can kind of let down their cards in that way and so so yeah so i had um created another body work had a show in in Brooklyn at uh it's called five plus five gallery and um yeah that went well the the only um this is a little side story from that but the best one of the best paintings I think I've made um was stolen from that show like someone just took it off the wall which is the problem with making tiny work. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever dealt with this, Dina, but, um, um, no, yeah, I, I was always kind of, you know, I also, I always kind of expect it. I, I expect at some point that one of my miniatures will either get lost probably by me or something <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> yeah, it was such a, uh, such a, um, it was really, uh, I don't know what the word is. It was tra- not traumatic, but really disappointing. So it was a small one by three inch painting um, of of my kind of uh, midsection um, and a hand and wood floors. And it, yeah, someone came in and just pocketed it. 
like when one of the gallery tenants wasn't wasn't watching. Wow. And yeah, it was really disappointing. So it's crazy that it's out there somewhere. Like somewhere has someone has this painting. <laughs> I, I, I would love love to see it again at some point. So we we interviewed um, Bert Silverman a few months mm -hmm. ago. And yeah. He's, you know he's in his nineties right now and still painting and still making really good paintings. But yeah. he has this crazy story, and I don't know if it was on the version of the podcast that came out or the first version that we scrapped because there's Wi-Fi problems. But he said in 1987, he had the show and he included his sketchbook uh, in, in the show. And oh. he just walked off with a sketchbook oh. uh, full of drawings. And then during COVID that someone, I guess, you know, had some pangs of conscience like 30 years later, right? Oh, wow. um, and returned the sketchbook and he showed it to us, I mean, on Zoom. And it was amazing. It was just, you know, every page was full of these, these gorgeous drawings. So uh, <laughs> where I'm going with this, <laughs> don't, it, don't lose hope that it, it, it might come back to you one day when you, you know, if, if you make it till 93. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love that. Yeah. yeah. That would be great to kind of, as we're kind of talking about, the art grind, right? So came out of school, continued to make these paintings, but like needed a job. And um, I don't know if you all know James Carousel in, uh, in Dumbo in Brooklyn. Yes. So at the time, yeah, it's, uh, it's right when I was coming out of the fellowship, um, Jane Walentis came to the academy asking for an artist to work on the horses, um, to paint the horses. And so for two years, I painted the skins. There was a team of, I don't know, maybe six of us. And we all had kind of different areas. There were people doing like the metal leaf. There were people doing, you know, kind of the flat, flat saddle painting and stuff like that, or the more decorative painting. And, but I was the, the horse skin guy. So I painted all I think there's 51 of those horses wow, that's um, incredible. over a two year period. And it was, it was such a great experience and job. And Jane was wonderful to work for. And um, so I did that for, for two years after grad school. And actually just this past December went back to do restoration work on, on five of them. So it was really so I was never into carousels, but that, that got me kind of hooked. And it's, it's just, it's that particular company, um, Philadelphia Toboggan Company, they've, they're in the thirties, they were like making the Cadillacs of carousels, like just beautifully carved horses, incredible decoration, really elaborate. So it was, it was really a privilege to, to work on it and continue to kind of have a relationship with it. Wow, that's so cool. I'll have to go over there and mindful that you painted them now. <laughs> that's great. You know, I'm not into carousels either, except for that one. I, I used to take take my older kid there all the time. You know how some things just feel magical. Like, so you, you told me you did that when, um, so me, me and Christian actually had lunch in Florence a few weeks ago, which feels yeah. like a lifetime now. <laughs> and I got so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a really special, 
project. And so much of it was because of, of Jane. I mean, the people working on it were, you know, highly skilled and, and really dedicated to it, but she just was so passionate about it, you know, had been working on it for, I don't know, probably 30 years, um, which were on her own, like, was just really dedicated to both restoring it to its original state, but even kind of embellishing it, enhancing it more, um, and, and cut no corners. And then in the end gives it to the city, you know, as a gift. It's, it's uh, really incredible. So did that job help alleviate some of that stress of getting out of school? And Yeah, yeah, it was a great transition, you know. Um, yeah, it, it was, um, it was pretty much full time. Um, but at that age, I had enough energy to both do the full time and paint outside of that. I was really lucky to be in the right place at the right time, have, have kind of a soft transition out of, out of that kind of, um, artificial environment of like art school and then like real life. So the, the last guest we had on was Betty Cunningham and Dina asked her for advice at the end. And she said, keep a job. <laughs> it's her advice. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was such funny advice. Like it wasn't following your dreams or anything. It was just sort of like, keep a job. But how, how important do you think that is? You, you're, you're teaching people now and they're about to graduate and things and all that. And it's like, how, how important is it to follow your dream and make as much work as you can, but then there's also practical considerations. Like what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. I I mean, part of it, I think really depends on um, your resources, you know, obviously it's like who, who, financial resources, you know, whether that be your own, whether that be um, your partner and, and what, what their situation is and how much that can kind of supplement your, um, your, your, your art practice. But I think for us, um, it was, it was difficult enough, even with a job to kind of continue. Um, like the, the 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 um, financial stability was like just enough to to keep keep things going, you know, keep producing. Um, I I couldn't I couldn't have imagined like just jumping into like all right, I'm just gonna make work, try and sell it, kind of hustle in that way. I needed some some kind of grounding. Um, and whether that's kind of an art-related job or a non-art-related job, I have kind of mixed feelings about because I've also, for years before grad school and after grad school, I've had done mural jobs and you know worked for a fresco artist uh, for years in LA and um, and another mural company in San Francisco for years, and it was always like this. Um, you know, like the decor, having a, a job in the decorative arts, it can be tricky because you're, it's satisfying on some level because you're still, you're still mixing paint and using brushes and applying color and, 
like it's satisfying some some aspect of like making, but it's also kind of draining draining that energy that you maybe that would build up that you'd have to get out into your own work. Like sometimes I was like, God, should I be like waiting tables or doing something totally unrelated um, that isn't, you know, because you're still sitting there painting for eight hours a day. You're just not painting your own work. Like, so it was challenging at points to, to then come home and like summon that energy to like, to, to do your own work. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of those things really do, because I've had tons of art jobs and they do sap some of it. It's like almost, it's too much to give an employer, like all that creative energy that you yeah. have. Yeah. And I think of like, I don't know, Bukowski or Harper Lee or these people had just like, Bukowski just sorted mail. And it's like, boy, that sounds, that sounds about right. <laughs> doesn't though because if you for okay because i actually had one of those jobs for like a week before getting fired <laughs> i have never seen minutes go by more slowly like i would look at the clock i believe my job was this is before there were spam internet sites so my job was basically to create spam by hand i think i was in college oh and you know it was doing the mailing for some doctor's office like of just their spam like you know 20 percent off and you have to fold it a certain way stamp it a certain way etc i i don't know i mean you know you hear of postal employees going postal and <laughs> like like and losing it like one more day of that job and and and, oh. I, and i was doing it like you know for me i, I found it through a temp agency but the people I was doing it with were like lifelong, like, like this is kind of a career for them. And, and A, they were very critical of the way I was folding and stamping and, you know, whatever. And one of them, you know, you had each one of us got a box and each box contained 1500 envelopes. So, you know, you lick and stamp and fold and, you know, et cetera. And I had mine like half full and you're supposed to fill one up by the end of the day. And I went to the bathroom and the woman sitting next to me, she took like half of mine and put them in her box. um and and i just felt like i was hitting some sort of bottom (laughs) like like it was it was right after you know my first year of college and i discovered painting and i was in love like i was in love with a boy i was in love with painting and i you know like i was kind of in love with life and it was such a sharp like if if my life doesn't work out this is where i end up Yeah, it's, um, it may be a case of a bit of like kind of grasses greener on the other side, you know, like you imagine, and it's probably like both situations you're going to be challenged in some way, whether it's like challenged to like um, kind of endure something that you're not passionate about for hours on end or challenged to kind of, summon the energy um outside of your job to 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 kind of make make your own work um oh, yeah. the boring non-art related jobs they'll wipe you out just as much mm-hmm. um, like like you get wiped out either way and i always felt like at least if it's an art related job you're talking about art you're thinking about art and you're right sometimes like you're mixing paint and even that's better than not doing it yeah. And it was, there was also, especially before grad school, I'd, I'd been uh, working for, yeah, a guy in LA and then a guy in Santa Barbara. 
and they, they would they would kind of create designs and you would execute them. And it's like there's, I think it was my wife that was like, you need to get out of this. Like you need to, because there's, again, it's it's satisfying some part of your creativity, creative practice. And there's always a demand for it. Like there's always rich people wanting their houses, you know, painted to look like a 14th century Italian villa or, you know, there have been some weird murals that I've done over the years. You know, like one of the weirdest was that there was a, this guy, his, his, his family crest was like a, a lion, right? Like a lion's head. And so he wanted like a trompe l'oeil marble lion's head, like, I don't know, three feet, four feet high, painted over his toilet. Right. <laughs> like, like that's, so it's like, there's always really wealthy people wanting weird shit painted in their house. And, and if you're, if you're good at it, it's like, if you're, if you're good at doing it, there's a security in that line of work, you know, whereas when you're just making your own work, you're dealing with galleries and dealing with, um, you know, kind of popular kind of trends and what people are into and people's subjective tastes, then it's, uh, it's much trickier to have, have a consistent income, you know? So, so yeah, it was my wife. She was like, so that whole world, it was full of people who either like enjoyed doing it. It was enough or fine artists that were just, just not happy in their life because, because they got stuck in it. So, so my, my wife has been good. She's, she's good at keeping right. Like, all right, you, you need to make a shift, you know? And that was, then it was like, all right, build up a portfolio of my own work and start applying to grad schools. She really helped me get out of that. Amazing. She did that. When I, when I think of your work, it's, it's funny because Dina had mentioned Eric Fischel earlier and he's like one of those, Maybe besides that, like bad boy painting or whatever with the the boy in the in the blinds and stuff, but like you don't really remember certain paintings of his, you know. It's just sort of a wash of Eric Fischerly looking stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I think of your work, I remember certain paintings, be it ones that we had been in shows together in or something. But yours do always stand out in a particular way. And I kind of, when I see someone like that, I'm, I marvel at it a little bit and want to like know the reason why, because it's such an intangible, right? Like why do I, or even Dina said, you know, like that thesis painting you did, she remembers it still. I remember the painting you did on the palette very well still, like, and I don't remember other paintings from that show. Like, what is it that you're going for in your work, I'm not necessarily asking narratively, but like compositionally that makes someone like me remember them. You tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, Marshall, I feel like this is a question that I feel like Christian might not be ready to respond to immediately because it's really hard, by the way. It's really hard. Can I ask an easier one? And we're going to get back to this one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really good question. And, um, and I'd like to answer it. Yeah. But maybe, 
maybe there's a, a way to it, like a buildup that I can get going so I can. Well, I, I, well, go, you ask yours, Dita. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I actually wanted to ask something easy that we should have asked in the beginning, and that, but, but instead we just, I felt like we just jumped straight into Christian's Academy days, maybe because that's kind of the intersection point for, for yeah. all of yeah. us. But you just, and I've just realized, you know, you start talking about working for mural companies and I've realized I know nothing about your life before you appeared at the Academy with, you know, an extreme skill set. Um, as a, and a terrifying, terrifyingly calm demeanor. No, um, <laughs> what led you to art? Like, you know, were you one of the kids who was always drawing? How did you wind up at the point where I met you? Yeah, so, yeah, I'm sure it was, I assume it's similar for you guys um, or for a lot of artists, but yeah, I mean, it started kind of in grade school. It's like there's, it's like everyone drew, you know, at that age, but there are always like a few that kind of just got into it way more than the others. Um, you know, and the, fir- the first time I really remember it is like there were three of us that would get together and we'd take eight and a half by, by 11 sheets of paper and, and kind of draw draw a line of water, you know, like the top of the sea level. We'd draw the bottom of the sea level. And then we, it's kind of like the exquisite corpse a little bit, like we'd have those two parameters and then we would fill this kind of undersea world with whatever we wanted and then come and tape them together and make this like panoramic scene but it's not like everyone was doing that it was just like a few of us that were that into it and then that that led to like Garfield like John Garfield which led to Transformers I was obsessed with Transformers and then that led to comics um, so comics, comic books were kind of like the gateway drug for me, really, to, to the figure. Um, that's when I really started to locate that, that as a subject that I was really into. And, um, and, and I, my parents got me a book that was like, it was called How to Draw the Marvel Way. Do you guys know this book? I know that book, yeah. Okay, so jump forward, whatever. 25 years. I'm at the Academy, not to bring him back to the Academy, but I'm at the Academy. We're all having lunch together. And I mentioned this book and seriously out of like the nine people that are at that table, like eight of them grew up with how to draw the marble way. Like it's this, um, we all had that book and, and, and I got a copy as an adult. Um, and it's, amazing it, the information that's in that book i mean so much of it is is stuff that we like would learn in school in grad school like yeah. about proportion and anatomy and you know kind of gesture and it, it's like just happens to be like superheroes that you're drawing but um so yeah so that uh so then i just i just kept it was all drawing 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 and and then in high school that it started to open up into painting. Uh, and then college came and it was like, I mean, I knew what I wanted to do, but my parents were like, uh, you should like maybe check some other stuff out before you like fully commit. So, so instead of going to art school, um, they wanted me to kind of get a broader education. So I went to UC Santa Barbara and I grew up in Michigan, but my family was moving to 
to California at the time. So I had kind of residential eligibility and stuff um, for the UC system. And then once I saw you, you see Santa Barbara coming from Michigan. I was like, oh my God, this place is amazing. It's I mean, like it the most just... beautiful little town in the world. Santa <laughs> yeah. It's insane. Yeah. It's, it is crazy. So I went there and it was a really bad time to be going to that school because it was full of tenured, um, I'd say older professors that were close to retirement um, that just had, I think, lost interest in really teaching. So the education wasn't very good, I'd say. Beautiful place to go to school um, and, and an incredible experience. And that's where I met my wife. So I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad I went there, but I really felt like any kind of instruction like I was pulling teeth trying to get any instruction out of the instructors there. That's such a shame. I don't know. A year or two later, they all retired. A whole new group came in. Um, so it's just bad timing. And so then I, um, I found Santa Barbara City College. It's a, it's a great city college in Santa Barbara. And it's, I found some figure courses there, uh, an anatomy course, figure painting, and went there and had just learned so much more than I did at, at uh, UCSB in kind of a year or two. And then meanwhile, was started working these mural jobs, going to school, starting to build that portfolio to, uh, to then apply to grad school. Were your parents overall reluctantly supportive or what? Because what? you said that they wanted you to be a little more practical. Was that... They were, um, they've always been really, really supportive of, of me doing art. Um, yeah, I was really blessed to have, have, have them support that. You know, like, I remember they signed me up for a, a kind of summer college course at uh, Cranbrook, um, which was my first, I, I think I was 14. It was my first figure drawing class. Um, and was such a great experience, but they, yeah, they, they've always been very supportive. They're come, the family's kind of full of architects or some version of architecture. It's like two brothers are architects. My dad's an architect. My sister studied kind of exhibition design for museums. So I think kind of art, doing art in general was, was in the, within their kind of realm. Um, I think the only time they weren't supportive was, was when I wanted to double major in philosophy <laughs> and, <laughs> and studio art. My dad was like, no, no, you can't. <laughs> Sorry. Like doubling down on the impracticality. <laughs> yeah. oh. um, it's funny because that's actually exactly what my sister did. She oh. in studio art and philosophy. Yeah, and our parents were so proud of her for. <laughs> I think they never like took the art degrees. Neither mine or or hers that like our parents are amazing, but they never took the art degrees that seriously. And for yeah. years, like even after my sister, she went to the academy for you know like for grad school. But for years, they'd say, "Well, we have one daughter with an art degree and another one with a philosophy degree," and <laughs> so proud of that philosophy degree. <laughs> 
Uh, and at some point she was like, you know, you know, like I do have an MFA now and like I've had a job as a working artist for years now. You can stop saying that. <laughs> Christian, there's a stories that I like uh, that people sort of that first experience of you said you were 14 when you took your first was this like a nude figure drawing class at 14? Yes. Yeah. And and Peyton, was that around like. I have such a soft spot because I was about your age the first time I did that. And it was these great older people, oftentimes fairly elderly, like, you know, doing these sort of like while everyone was at work, there'd be a figure drawing class or something. And I loved going and meeting these people and talking to them about art. Did you, do you have any lessons you learned back then from, from those people? I'd say generally I have a really, really poor memory, both short-term and long-term. It's just, it's bad. It's kind of always been like that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm more, I'm more kind of in the present than I am kind of in the past or the future. Um, no, I mean, I, I, the thing I remember and it's, I mean, it's, it's so kind of typical, but like a 14 year old boy seeing um, a live nude female for the first time. Uh, I remember trying, it took me um, a bit to like get past, to get past the nudity and like, and to get this kind of separation between, I don't know, kind of sexuality and nudity. Um, and, uh, but, but then once it clicked, it was, it's beautiful. Cause then you can, it's like all these all the things that I love about the human body, you know, which mainly have to do with, with form and structure and expression. Like that's, it's like, then that, that all starts to come to the forefront and you can like really um, dig into it and enjoy it in a way that you, that I couldn't as a 14 year old initially get, get into, <laughs> but it was, it was a great experience. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you're you're 14. You're doing figure drawing. You, you know, does that eventually lead you to the academy? And then what happens? So I, I had done my grad school, and then um, Fosia, my wife, she um, it was kind of her turn. Um, she had been a, uh, a biological illustrator for um, you know biological botanical illustrator for for years. Um, didn't study it. She, she studied studio art, mainly photography, but got into as a job being an illustrator and then started to develop um, really bad carpal tunnel um, from the painting, doing these kind of very tight miniature watercolor illustrations. And so, so while we were in New York, she was like, I need to find something else, something new to kind of do. I can't continue to do this. And so she came to writing um, and she had been writing all her life, her whole life, um, mainly in the form of journals um, and had never thought of it as like a, a thing to study, an occupation or anything like that. But once she figured it out and took, I think she took a class or two up at Sarah Lawrence when we were in New York. Once um, she figured that out, then she was like, this is what I want to do. So so she um, she ended up going to Mills College in Oakland, 
And so we moved uh, after James Karras and all, and all that, we moved out to California or back out to California. And during that time, that's when I, that's when I was, uh, again, kind of went back to mural work as a, as a kind of day job. And that slowly transitioned into teaching because at the Academy, again, as that part of that third year fellowship, you got to TA for, for the, for different instructors. And I had never taught before, but man, once I started to do that at the Academy, it sparked something inside me. I mean, I, I loved it. Um, didn't really know what I was doing, but knew I loved it. And, you know, we'd have these, those six hour classes, painting classes, first three hours, the instructor's there. So I'd be there during that time. And then the second three hours, instructor would leave and I would continue to like help students. And I just, that's where I really, really um, figured out that teaching was something that I wanted to do. And so then it was kind of in California, it was about making this transition away from jobs that I had done in the past that were kind of more comfortable that I had experience with um, and therefore could get get into those jobs easily and transition into teaching. Um, so I started teaching at, at different schools in the Bay Area, um, community colleges, ateliers, and, and eventually quit the mural job and just, just adjunct at various schools. And, and at, at points, um, I think at its worst, I was adjuncting it five different schools. So I was just driving all over oh the Bay God. area in traffic, <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to, trying to make a living with the teaching. It, it was just, just that experience at the Academy of, of tasting teaching really, um, kind of set a trajectory for, for the last 20 years, you know? How, how do you think teaching informs your work? Yeah, this reminds me of a question, similar question that someone asked um, years ago, and they were like, do you think teaching helps you, like helps, helps you in your work, mm-hmm. which I had never really thought about before. And, and at the time I said, no, <laughs> it doesn't, because, <laughs> because you spend so much of your time um, critiquing work. And, and, and it was kind of skill and technique-based work, you know? It was kind of foundational learning about form and shape and proportion and color and accuracy and subtlety. Um, so it, I found it, and, and still do at points, um, find it very difficult to separate that voice in my head, that kind of, that way of looking at things critically from how I'm thinking while I'm actually working on my own work. So it's, uh, which, which I think makes me more kind of careful than I should be like kind of less risk taking than I should be. But then I'd say in these last eight years, uh, at UNT, as I've started to work with students that, um, are outside of that kind of foundational realm, you know, like MFA students and, kind of senior capstones where they're working on your own, their own kind of ideas. 
dealing with that variety and, and helping people kind of fostering curiosity and, and, and trying to be empathetic in terms of relating to what they're trying to do and helping them find ways to do those things more efficiently, effectively with more impact, visual impact that I think has kind of made a switch in, in, the answer to that question where where i think it's actually benefit like it's it's kind of mind opening rather than kind of constricting does that make sense no it does and it, it kind of reminds me of like there's this duality that seems very hard to unify the idea that because you're definitely like a skill skill guy you know you've got a lot of skills and then there's people who sort of let go easily, but don't really have the skills. And then it's, it's hard to marry a vision as an artist that involves letting go and maintaining skill and writing that line, just, just to a way that satisfies, you know? Yes. Yeah. I, I know that line and, and struggle with it all the time. Um, and love seeing other people do it well, (laughs) like it's, like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, like an example of that, what I think would be, for me, I don't know, recently, would be like Zoe Frank. Um, yeah. She comes to mind where, yeah. man, you can see from her training um, how solid of a foundation she has, but then this kind of willingness and, and fearlessness to kind of break out of that. Um, and be, yeah, break out of the traditions and kind of tropes of of that kind of education to make something really special. Um, that's inventive, exciting, and like crafted so beautifully, you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the perfect example of like, this is what acquiring skills is for, right? Like you acquire skills, not just to have skills, Right, like you acquire tools not just to have a really beautiful toolbox, right? Yeah. You know, you have your beautiful toolbox, and then you go and like, I don't know, build a house. But you, but you go and build something, and that's what I feel like she's doing. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really inspiring, and and I'm I'm I think um, I think over these past two years where I've been focusing more on drawing, and you know, starting with with COVID and uh, the isolation, kind of the lack of studio kind of community and interaction, like working with these these Zoom drawings, uh, they they feel like they've um, when you're talking about riding this line between like skill and like freedom, kind of openness, risk. Um, in these drawings, it's, it's kind of one of the first times that I'm really doing that. I haven't really done it in painting. It's always been this kind of tightening, tightening, tightening. And and the, those those drawings, when I first started doing them, started like that. It was like, and then I was like, I've got to, I've, I've got to, I want to use this opportunity to find a, a new way of drawing, you know, because it's, it's like draw, drawing, drawing, um, before that, it was always 
it was always kind of in the service of painting. It was preparation for painting. It was studying before I do a painting. And there was, there was a tightness to that. And I didn't really think of the drawings as pieces on their, on their own, kind of autonomous. But these, uh, these Zoom sessions have been so great um, just to, to have limitations. I, I also w- I wanted to say, like your Zoom drawings, it's nice to hear a little bit of backstory on them because they are so beautiful. And I was showing them to a friend recently, and it's true. They don't necessarily feel, quote unquote, academic, but they feel very skillful and there's just a pre- like, like the ones you've done of Betty recently are so strong. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's really something. I was mm. me and my friend were talking about them, and it's like, it's got a quality that we've been talking a lot on this show about, like kind of that intangible that has a search for something, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Is um, elusive quality, by the way, it's just something is good. Like, you know, like we know when it's poor and we know when it's love. We also know when it's good. And I yeah. think we, we do spend a lot of time trying to be like, what is that thing that makes us care? But I think we just care about good art. I think when it's good, we care. That's it. And yeah. That's- yeah, yeah, definitely. I just, at some point I was like, well, there's a few aspects, I guess, about those drawings. And it's weird because they started out as just this very, I was teaching more than ever because, because of COVID. There was, it was extra stressful because it was all through the screen like this. I you just I, heard the word Zoom for the first time. It was like, <laughs> this will be yeah. two weeks of this and we'll be done. <laughs> and, and those Zoom sessions, they were like, they were this, this planned, scheduled three hours where I, I could kind of, let go of all of that. There was kind of major health things going on in my family. Um, so it was this, this like steady practice, um, like minimal practice, but so fruitful and, and enjoyable. Yeah. I started out, um, just kind of enjoying the practice of it and, and kind of being frustrated a bit. Um, it's weird because you, you don't, you don't choose the model. You don't choose the pose. Um, you don't choose the lighting. You you often have this crappy image where <laughs> things are blurry and compressed. You know, like masses of black that that just kind of blend together, or you can't see detail. And and so at first that was kind of frustrating, but then I was like, oh man, so. So how can I take this thing that I have no control over, like the challenges, and and I always just spend the three hours. I don't go and work them anymore after that. Like that beeper goes off and it's done. Like that's it. How can I take these? I I always think like limitations and kind of constraints. uh, They're beautiful things that come out of that, whether it's a limited palette that you're working with or I don't know if you're, forced to make dinner and you have a limited number of ingredients to work with, like it kind of pushes the creativity that you don't use when you have access to a full pantry and you know, like anything you want. Okay. Um, I'll go ahead. No, no, you, you finish. I have a question. Okay. Um, but not, you know, not worth interrupting you for. <laughs> so, 
so those those sessions it became like all right how do i take these limitations and like make it into a good drawing how do, how do i do that either with mark with what i choose to describe or not describe um emphasize or kind of de-emphasize and um so that was that was like a really great challenge that came out of it and then materially it was wonderful because i i was always like graphite charcoal like i was very kind of regimented about if i was getting kind of breaking the lines it would start to mix graphite and charcoal you know um but i was like man i'm just going to use whatever is in my pantry of of kind of drawing materials and see what works together and you know so to to mix graphite charcoal with like brush pen which i had never used before and it felt like i was driving a car that i couldn't control <laughs> you know it's like those when you first start using those pens they they feel uh it's just such a different such a different mark and the whole pressure thing is is so different than anything else i had used ballpoint pen but just saying like just trying to mix these in a way that both makes it interesting as a drawing makes it interesting texturally and um has a a looseness to it or an experimental quality for me that i haven't hadn't done before um and it, so it was uh it's it's been it's been really a, a really great practice um these past two years freedom is something that we tend to you know prioritize and romanticize and you know there's some point when we're like 18 where being free feels like the most important thing in, in the world like free of maybe parental strict constraints or authority or structure but that being said you're talking about you know limitations or constraints and it actually kind of made me think of you know the 15th century like a, you know but like pre-renaissance where people were actually limited to I don't know what, like 15 biblical subjects that they were allowed to paint. Uh, like if you're a painter, you're either painting Jesus on the, you know, Jesus being born, Jesus the toddler, Jesus on the cross. I, I, I don't know, like 10 more things, right? But yet the things that got made were so weird and lovely and idiosyncratic and in a way richer than I feel like, like then I sometimes feel like walking through just contemporary art galleries where people have unlimited freedom and I feel like what they're choosing to spend it on is like a white canvas on like an off-white wall or is the other way around. So, so what you, like, it sounds like what you're saying is limitations make us more creative, but you know, conversely, is freedom actually kind of bad for us? Like, like do we not do well? You go ahead, Marshall, if, you, if you're ready. <laughs> oh gosh, I have so many opinions on freedom. I think it's like, I don't, I, I do, Dina, 100%. I think, you know, freedom within limits, like Gerda's saying, it's like, it's very, very powerful. Like you want, you want to have limits to thrive. And then it's like. But, but you know, you want the freedom to be, you know, to be able to make work, right? And not have to work 10 different freelance jobs, right? Like if you have those limitations, uh, I'm not sure that makes you more creative, right? That, that just gives you time limitations and energy limitations. So but you're talking about like any kind of freedom, like um, big ideas of freedom, not not freedom within a kind of creative context. You know, and 
Um, I'm playing with the idea, right? Um, what do in my family is we debate. I grew up sort of like, you know, someone presents an idea and everyone else just, you know, plays with it and takes little bites out of it and constantly interrupts each other, which is, you know, possibly why, you know, why I can't wait with my question. But there's this um, line from probably my favorite Russian rock singer from, from the 80s named Boris Gribinchikov. And, and it's, it's better to be needed than to be free. And at 18, I saw, felt like this is ridiculous. Like, but freedom is the most important thing. And, and now I'm like, all right, I, I, I get it. Like if you're not needed, then freedom becomes, then everything becomes unnecessary in a way. Like, like freedom is only good within the limitations of being needed. Uh, or am I, not, am I just not making any sense? No, I love it. I'll, I'll do another song quote, like uh, Bob Dylan, that uh, our birds free from the chains of the skyway, like even something like that. You're still within limits. And I think like so much emphasis right now in politics and stuff is freedom and this idea of American freedom. And it's just like, it feels like it's all just in our heads, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's, you're, you're, you're still stuck on a planet you don't really understand. And all that you have is your consciousness to order it. You know, what, what are you choosing to prioritize in your own mind feels like the only freedom you'll ever have, you know? Um, Marshall, not stuck on a planet we don't understand. We have the privilege, right, of living on this planet that we don't really understand. I was talking about the force of gravity being stuck on the side of this (laughs) (laughs) But we also don't quite understand how it works. So, (laughs) You know that ride in the amusement park, which spins really, really quickly and then you see the wall? Do you feel like we're just that? <laughs> we are that. We're in that. <laughs> it's a gravitron. <laughs> the gravit god. Oh, I've never been on that thing. I remember. <laughs> I I have a I have a. I don't know whether this should be in the podcast, but I have a a horrible phobia of throwing up. <laughs> um, like I haven't thrown up since I was. I think the last time was like seven years old or something like I've made it through the majority of my life without throwing out is, is that, I think that's I believe that's called a hermetophobe is that right I think well so. I don't know I've never looked it up it's real <laughs> so like at around that age maybe eight years old I was watching I was like in line getting ready to get on the gravitron and there was uh that's going around and going around and I see this person throw up and then um <laughs> slaps back and like is covering all the people around them <laughs> and i was like oh it was it is so like burnt into my head and is it's it's things like and another vomiting a vomit story from that same trip i think totally influenced the the phobia that i've carried for the last 40 two years <laughs> all it takes is one bad gravitron experience <laughs> but, get, getting, but getting back to the limitations that you set you set yourself do you actually feel like you can be more free and more creative and you can get weirder or looser or kind of you know out of your comfort zone because you're limited to these three hours zoom screen no control i do 
And, and I think you get, you just get to, if I'm thinking of freedom in terms of um, subject process materials, ideas, whatever, I think, I think, well, I'm sure it's different for different people, but I, I feel like for me, I operate better when there are some kind of constraints. Like if there's a conceptual constraint, there's something that you're trying to go for and you delve and kind of hit it from different directions. Like there's, um, there's a, I don't know, a, a proficiency, a, a potency that comes out of that practice. And in the same way, I feel like if there's a, like with these Zoom drawings, if there's a, a limitation in terms of time or with my students all the time when, you know, because I work a lot with limited palettes, you you just, you get to know the materials and what the potential of those materials are in a way that you don't if you have access to everything. You know, it reminds me of like, in grad school, you know, they, it was one of the classes, one of the assignments where we were working with the dead palette, which, you know, was yellow ochre, red ochre, red ochre. So earth red, earth yellow, uh, blue, black, and white, um, which is great when you're kind of painting people. But um, we were painting still lives with like bright red balls and green objects and like bright yellow and the challenge was like all right how do you how do you manipulate color and value relationships to make that green box look vibrant when all you have is blue black and yellow ochre to make that green so like you get into like all right how are you affect manipulating the colors around it to pump up the chroma of, of the green or whatever so it's like these I don't know whether it's limitations or constraints or prompts within those kind of limitations that I think you get to know, you just get a deeper understanding of whatever, how color works, how, how paint works, you know? So Christian, by the way, these drawings that you've been making, are they just for yourself or is there a larger plan behind this or is this just a, you know, a, a love project? It started as just for myself yeah just to just to keep a practice going when when so much was going on a, a scheduled practice um and i mean i would make stuff outside of that three hours a week but that i like knew i was going to do every week and then i think the more the more um that i did it the more i started to see them together as, as a whole and and think of it as right now i don't i don't know what i don't know what it's going to be i mean i've thought about trying to show it together i also thought it would be great to have a show of a curated show of work from those sessions you know so that you get i mean that's another beautiful thing that comes out of that is you've got anywhere from 30 to 150 people drawing the same image and seeing how everyone else is interpreting it in their own special way. It's not like a model in a room where you've got this kind of 360 view where there are all these possibilities. It's like, we're all looking at the same damn crappy image <laughs> and you get such a variety of, of kind of manifestations of how, how to represent that moment, you know? 
So I, I could see it. I could see it. I, I've never done curation before, but I've thought about trying it with this because I've, because I've been so invested in it for a long period of time. Because there's been some great work that's come out of there. So if you kind of pick the best of and, and had a show, I think it'd be great. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know exactly what's, what's going to happen with them. So how about your life right now? What does that look like? And, and where do you see it going? So one thing that's kind of come out of, one thing that's, I don't mean to keep going back to the Zoom drawings, but they've, they've been unexpectedly like really influential on kind of where, where I'm at now. Often there was, there was, a, there was a lack of information there. Well, sorry, I'll back up. I get bored when I, when I do something for too long. So I'm getting bored with the, the, the uh, Zoom drawings. Like I'm kind of moving past that. If I've been painting small scale for a long, long period of time, I'll get tired of that and move on to like large scale drawings. Or if I've been doing figure for too long, I'll get into landscape and then switch back. I can't kind of, some artists are just kind of so... Um, I don't know, maybe kind of focused on one kind of path, you know, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm constantly trying to challenge myself because um, I get bored when I get too comfortable with something. And so I feel like I've gotten too comfortable with like the, the Zoom drawings. But one thing that's, that's come out of that is, is an appreciation for ambiguity because um, I feel like a lot of my work, it's it's about clarity. Like there's no, I mean, visual clarity. You see everything that's there. And 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 I love that. Like a, that's where, kind of where I've been. But but these Zoom drawings where you can't, um, you can't read things well. And then, so you're, you're kind of just embracing that ambiguity has started to tie into, um, to, to nocturnes, like to, to night paintings, um, which coincided with some bouts of insomnia where I'm up in the middle of the night and like staring out the window and just like, like appreciating, like, you know, letting my eyes adjust and appreciating like all of the beautiful subtlety that's happening within this very limited chromatic and value range and thinking how could I how could I capture that? Like, is it possible to capture that? And I think it, I think it is. So I'm, so I'm working on studies, um, usually which are, are, are initiated or start with a, a digital painting on my iPad because I've always had this, I've always wanted to do nocturnes, but, but that logistically is just so, such a nightmare. Like, Plain error, plain error, nocturnes with like a light and everything. Yeah, yeah. You've got you've got to have enough light on your paint. Hold on, I thought it was a nightmare, and then I did this residency a few weeks ago. That you know was people who are really hardcore plein air painters. Like, uh, but they you know they had the umbrellas and the equipment, but they had these really cool clip-on like nightlight things to check mm. it up the painting and the palette and they would do these gorgeous like plein air nocturne studies and now I kind of want like and now I think my whole life would maybe be different if I just got one of those lights <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to get the name of this light from you 
because I've, I've just, I've had such a hard time with it. And because you're, it takes about, you know, I, I researched, I got into like optics and night vision and all this stuff, like, like how, how you're, how to get your eyes to adjust to darkness and how long that takes. And it's, it's usually takes about like 20 minutes for it to like fully adjust to where you can kind of read darkness as well as you can. Um, so, so this thing of back and forth between looking at a lit object and then looking into this darkness, trying to get the subtlety, like to sit there for 20 minutes and wait or put on blindfolds and just sit and wait and then open your eyes <laughs> and then record it. Like, it's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But, but the iPad is so great because you, you can take the dimness all the way down so that you're where you where in a normal room you can't see anything you can't see color you can't but when your eyes have adjusted and you have that brightness all the way down you see all the chroma and value just as you normally would once your eyes are adjusted so you don't have this delay between what you're seeing and what you're recording um so what i do what i've been doing is doing color studies on on the ipad and then taking photographs as reference for kind of, you know, like subtlety and accuracy of drawing and things like that. So using it, the iPad as a color study, which I, I do that all the time. Like I use a lot of photography, but I always, always have a color study from life, whether it's in paint or from the iPad. That's, that's, that's one thing that I'm moving into. And then the other is to try and take this freedom that I've been giving myself with with drawing media um, to bring that into my painting practice because I, I haven't done it before. I do it, I've done it for myself, but it's it's always, you know, the initial reaction is like, like that's not <laughs> not working. Um, but uh, but I think it's it's a matter of doing enough of them so that you you start to just kind of loosen up in a way and be less serious about it, be willing to kind of destroy it a bit and rebuild. That's, that's what the drawings have been like, so. So what advice would you have for people who are maybe where you were 20, 30 years ago? Like, I feel like so much of, so much of, of life is about the grind. Like, what advice would you have for that? You keep making work. It seems like no matter how hard or easy life is and like you're in this for life. So it's more like what advice do you have for, you know, for people who are potentially like you, like something, you know, maybe a few people listening to this are going to become like art world superstars and make, make a zillion dollars. But I think most people like, like you and maybe like me and Marshall too, like we're just people who keep doing the thing that we're doing every day, no matter what else gets in the way of it. I guess I have a couple thoughts. One, one is, um, I think what I, what I see more often among, among peers is, is that there's, and I'm sure this has come up in other conversations that you've had for the podcast, but it seems like it's this cobbling together of, of different resources and activities that let you make a living, you know, make a living and, and continue to make work. You know, it's kind of like money and energy, like, and 
how how much or how little and how you work that balance um how you delegate those kind of resources um for me i i feel like i was really lucky in that i found one one thing that i had to cobble together with with the art and that was teaching and um i'm lucky in that it's it's as important of a practice for me as making art is like i know some instructors um do it for stability um do it as just another art job that kind of satisfies some aspect of their being you know but for me it's it is not that um it is like when i don't teach for a period of time i i really stick it antsy in a way that if i'm not making for a long time i really start to feel this need um to express that and i think i think yeah it's uh i i love doing it i think i'm good at it i try and continue to get better at it um but i think i'll do it as long as i can um so i i feel like i was yeah i was just really lucky to to find to kind of have a simpler situation where it's just these two things these two professional activities that i'm that i'm practicing and and really happen to be really passionate about both of them i remember what your images look like through things i've seen on instagram like i can recall drawings you've done of betty i can recall various paintings uh say the woman who's like bending over tying her shoes you know and and then the one that was in the pallet show i remember all of these what is that that makes someone like me remember in your paintings what quality is it mm. and how how do you achieve it <laughs> cuz it's a desirable quality what's the secret sauce so it's it's um i have a hard time kind of hearing from people that they're getting that from my work like there's a it's 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 a hard time kind of taking compliments in that way i mean cuz it's it's something that i want it's it's the a phenomenon that i experience all the time with artwork like what makes it memorable you know there are things that stick um i'll just go through some things that kind of come to mind what i'm trying to do i think first and foremost it's about composition and design um i feel like regardless of the subject um the kind of technical skill used in painting that subject regardless you know none of my works really conceptual it's not really narrative it's it's like visual it's about it's about an individual and an interaction with that individual so um i think if, if the design isn't there it's just it's not going to it's not going to have that kind of impact so i think I think design is really important. Second, I th- I think I think craft is really important. You know, craft technique, like having a having a level of 
facility with with materials to to kind of push their potential like as a material like oils has a ton of potential gouache has potential and and limitations you know it's so it's like i feel like it's about trying to push the potential of that medium an aspect of oil painting that i have not pushed is like the kind of textural aspect of it you know i'm a relatively lean painter but but one that i push a lot is is kind of opacity and transparency finding ways of achieving so this gets into the, like a third attribute which i think is color and just realizing that there's so many different ways to create a color and create maybe not just a color but a color effect you know through um especially through indirect pain methods which that's that's what i fall into i'm way more comfortable with indirect rather than direct and another would be i guess i i try and kind of distill things down as much as i can now this is why my my paintings they're not busy a couple of years ago i realized that for the last 20 years i've been painting single people like the last multi-figure painting I did was this diploma project 20 years ago. <laughs> Since then, I literally have, it has been an individual. And, and, and that was a really, it wasn't conscious. It was just, it was, um, it was something about like this kind of focus and distillation down to the individual where it's not about um, an interaction that you're kind of creating, but it's more about an interaction between the viewer and the piece rather than interactions within the painting, if that makes sense. I mean, figurative interactions or interactions between figures. So that's kind of part of that distillation. It's like kind of getting rid of the extraneous and um, just having a, a good solid design with good color and good technique. And it sounds like a bit of focus, like we were talking about freedom and, and limitations. It feels like they, they, they transcend because there's, there's something you're capturing very, uh, like a lot of quality within these constraints and limits. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to do. And then, and then I think the last thing would be, um, and this is this is the case with some of my work and some other work. It's it's not the case, but it's like I'm trying to. It's like you can you can feel it. I I I see it in I see it in your work, um, both of your work. But there's this, well, especially with the figure. There's a kind of there's this these kind of base layers that are being built up, right. And then there's some point where it starts to starts to switch where it's not it's not just about kind of um, form or paint application or composition or color, but it's where there's this life that's to come into that person where there's a you know someone else put it when they were talking about one of my pieces they were like it feels like there's like there's a breath there, like there's a breathing, like a real being there. And that, that I, I, it's like, I know when it starts to happen and I, I don't even really know what I'm doing 
when it starts to happen, but I'm not really satisfied until it happens, you know? And it's not like, it's not associated with some facial feature or something, but like I'll be drawing Betty and it's like, there are, and I love drawing Betty. God, I wish she was a model when I was at the Academy, but um, there's, there's this point where you can kind of feel her there. And, and it's, it's not about like a highlight on the glint of an eye or, but it's, um, and it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens sometimes. And I feel like there's a moment when like the soul moves into the painting. Yes. Yeah. Like you're painting and you're painting. And at some point, whatever it is you're looking for, like sort of like starts inhabiting it. Yeah. yeah. God, I love that. And it's, I feel like it's, I feel like it's in the like last 10% of the painting. It's not there in the beginning. There's all this work that goes into building it up, but I love the feeling of that, um, that coming to life. And, and I, don't, I don't know how to do that yet with landscape. Um, landscape is like my therapy for figurative work. It's like, it feels so like light and um, I mean, difficult, but like light, there's a lightness to it. Um, but but I see it happen with your landscapes, Tina, or or your animals, or you know whatever. I see it in your work, and um, I I need to I need to figure out how to do that with with other subjects, you know. Thank you. So it coming from you, it means a lot. And Christian, thank you so much for talking to us. You've oh, yeah, this is great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been wonderful. It's great to virtually meet you, and, and I look forward to seeing you in the city sometime when you yeah. come to the carousel. So. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and I hope you got some good painting done while we entertain you with our amazing guest. If you like what you're hearing, follow and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done so yet. And if you're so inclined, rate us whether you love or hate us. We love hearing all the different opinions and appreciate the feedback. You can reach out to us at artgrindpodcast at gmail.com or DM us on IG at artgrindpodcast. You faithful listeners have the power to help us grow. So please spread the word. It's free and you'll feel good about it. So until next time, stay on the grind while we fill your mind. <laughs>